Chapter Twelve of Six Years in the Prisons of England by a Merchant, edited by Frank Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: How Rebels Against Society Are Made. I am removed to a small room amongst murderers. The High Flyer again. How a young gentleman was made a warning to others. A certain class of criminals it would be very wrong to say all, may be looked upon as rebels against society, and assuming that they are so, it would be difficult to conceive a more effective method of promoting and disseminating the spirit of rebellion than that which is adopted in our convict establishments. We collect all these rebels from the various counties into a few localities, six hundred here, a thousand there, and a hundred and fifty thousand somewhere else, and along with them we place a certain proportion of comparatively untainted men. We subject them to a course of rigorous discipline in matters of diet and exercise, the sole effect of which is to stimulate them still more against society. We allow them a certain amount of intercourse with each other, liberty to the old to contaminate the young, to the veteran ruffian to enlist and drill the new recruit, to all to plan their new campaigns and hatch new conspiracies, and then disperse them throughout the country to sow the seeds of sedition, and rise the standard of rebellion wherever they may go. This is really what is being done in our convict prisons. Take an extreme case and keep out of sight altogether the characters and dispositions of our criminals, and imagine a hundred of England's most steady, honest, and industrious working men placed in our convict establishments for a few years, and what would be the result? It would most probably be this. If they were young, and had only received an imperfect education, fifty of them would join some branch of the thief profession if kept by force in convict society for three years. Seventy of them would do so if kept for six years, and if kept ten years they would almost all be corrupted, and become, when liberated, a source of corruption themselves. But if the hardened and incorrigible criminals were really punished in any proportion to the others the system would have a kind of consistent iniquity about it which it does not possess my left-hand companion was an old agricultural labourer one of a large class to whom a convict prison is no punishment he had been brought up to work and although an old man he could work far more than a city thief and yet not hard work he had brought up a family who were all scattered abroad he had now no real home when out of prison, and his third penal sentence of fourteen years was very much lighter punishment to him than fourteen days, with loss of character, would be to anyone in the upper or middle classes of society. I met many such men in prison, and I used to ask them how much money they would take to do my sentence in addition to their own. One would say a hundred L another fifty l another forty l and some would even take considerably less imprisonment with hard labour 
will never have the slightest effect in deterring such men from committing crime. Labour that would soon kill many other men would not punish them, but they would prefer it even to sitting in school. Rough fare they can do with as long as it fills the belly. They have no other ambition to gratify. With the stomach distented and a quid of tobacco in their mouths, they are as happy as kings and very careless about liberty. Many of them, when they leave the prison, leave home. To such men and to all the class of vagrant and pauper criminals, a convict prison means a comfortable home where they are fed and clothed and bathed and physicked and have all their wants supplied without trouble or care in exchange for their liberty and such labour as they can easily and cheaply perform to the professional thieves a convict prison is a court of bankruptcy to be avoided if possible and to be made the most of when unavoidable a place of punishment no doubt but punishment nearly useless and entirely misdirected to the man who has wrought for his living at some honest trade up to the commission of his first known offence who has been accounted respectable by his neighbours and who belongs to a class of society with whom loss of character is utter ruin a convict prison is a hell if he happen also to be a man of thought and education it will in addition appear to be an institution for robbing honest taxpayers and a nursery of vice and crime which all good men should endeavour to reform or destroy in the small room to which i was now removed the lodgers were quiet inoffensive men and in a few cases apparently religious during my residence in the prison i was frequently moved from one room to another to suit the convenience of the prison authorities Fortunately, I had no rent to pay, no economy to study, no opportunity to practice honesty, and my effects were easily carried about. Obedience, the soldier's virtue, and civility were all I had to study, and these were not difficult to practice in my own case. One class of prisoners in these rooms were elderly men, who had committed murder or manslaughter, and who, from their age and infirmities, had missed being sent to Western Australia. I knew upwards of twenty of them, and generally speaking, they were quiet, inoffensive men, with no inclination to steal or to do wrong. Several of them had very hot tempers, all of them indeed, who committed their crimes under the influence of anger. Others I sympathised with a good deal, inasmuch as they had been sorely tempted and seemed penitent and honest one of them had brought up a family of honest working men after the death of their mother he married and lived with another woman who was addicted to intemperance and he was so annoyed at her conduct and by her tongue that his passion obtained the mastery over him and in a moment of frenzy he killed her this prisoner had had his arm broken at portland which prevented his being sent abroad whence he would have been liberated by this time another case was that of a comparatively young man who shot his sweetheart because she had chosen another man 
just as the prisoner was looking forward to his marriage with her. He tried to shoot himself at the same time, but the shot passed through the jaw and cheekbones, leaving him in a sadly disfigured condition to meet his doom of penal servitude for life. I met several cases where murder was committed through jealousy. One man murdered his wife for flirting or cohabiting with another man. A second murdered the paramour and spared his wife, and so on. In the majority of these cases, the prisoners were very unlikely to commit a second offence. There was one very peculiar case which I will here mention. The prisoner was the worst cripple perhaps in the prison, and the quietest man in it. He rarely spoke to anyone unless he was first spoken to, and his answers were very brief. This man committed a deliberate murder, although he had only one arm and but one good leg. He lay in wait for his victim, and his motive for perpetrating the deed was not money but revenge. The person he killed had injured or defrauded his father before he died, and being unable to obtain justice, he took revenge, and is now paying the full penalty. He sits in the workroom along with the others, but being paralysed, he is not compelled to work at anything. Another peculiar case was that of a man who had starved his mother to death, in order to obtain possession of her money. He was a miser, and was often taunted for his crime by the thief fraternity. He was the filthiest neighbour I ever had. Most of the prisoners are cleanly in their habits, but this one was the reverse. He would have his food stored away beside him, rather than give it to a fellow prisoner. He was not a great eater, and at one time there was more food about than the prisoners could consume, but whatever he got he kept until it was taken from him. After being confined for about thirteen years, he was allowed to go to North America, on a conditional pardon, to a son who lived there. Among the many petitions I drew out for prisoners to copy, his was the only one that ever succeeded. I have written petitions for dying men to the Home Secretary, for permissions to go out and die at home, and many without any just grounds at all, but none succeeded, save the one I have mentioned above. I have repeatedly asked prisoners under sentence of penal servitude for life whether they would prefer that sentence to being hanged. The general reply was, I would rather be topped at once and be out of my misery, than remaining in prison all my days. It's bad enough when I have the prospect of liberty in twelve years. If they are going to keep men in prison all their days and torture them besides, they'll commit suicide or murder in prison. Look at Townley who threw himself over the stair railings at Pentonville and killed himself. Such would be the answers I would receive to my questions on this subject. With reference to Townley's case, I was told by an intelligent prisoner who knew him and saw him commit suicide that it was committed mainly in consequence of the cruel, absurd and childish system of suppressing a prisoner's letters to his friends on grounds usually hostile to the interests of society, viz. 
the concealment of truth. Another class of prisoners were coiners. These were generally flymen. They knew every point of the law on the subject, and as a rule returned to the profession as soon as they got their ticket. Prison is no doubt a great punishment to such men, because they can make a good living at their business. But I question if ever there was a reformed coiner. They are usually well-conducted prisoners, that is, they are civil and do what they are told, but their influence over others is very pernicious. A very considerable number of the convicts left the prison with the intention of hawking from place to place, and doing a little bit on the cross when they saw the coast clear, which meant either stealing or snide-pitching. These hawkers found friends in the coiners, who would tell them where they could get the bad money, so that if they could not work themselves, they could do a friend a turn in the way of business. I knew several instances of prisoners with a first conviction getting a second in consequence of being told where to get bad money, and I knew many more who will, in all human probability, meet with the same fate from the same cause. Another of my fellow prisoners was a singular specimen. I have already referred to him as being almost the only high flyer in the prison, as being the man who once obtained a hundred and fifty L from a gentleman in Devonshire under false pretenses. This man was not ranked among the aristos in prison society although he was in many respects their equal or superior in certain branches of education. And here I may remark that on parade, where all the prisoners exercised together, they associated in classes as they would do outside, the roughs, the prigs, the needy mizzlers, and the aristos, keeping not always but pretty much among themselves. There were only a few of the class termed aristos, and they comprised men who had been clergymen, merchants, bankers, editors, surgeons, etc. These were usually my associates during the exercise time. Now the high flyer I have referred to did not belong to this class, but except in his principles and habits and tastes, his education was quite equal to theirs. He spoke German and French fluently, knew Latin and Greek, a smattering of Italian, and the higher branches of mathematics. What first surprised me about him was his pretended intimacy with some German merchants of the highest standing I knew in London, and with whom I had done business. To know such men I afterwards found was part of his profession. He could tell me not only the names and titles of the nobility and gentry, but the names of their families, where many of them were educated, to whom they were married, and many other particulars of their private history. His sentence was three years, and I believe he got it something in this way. He had been in the country following his profession, and had obtained some money, I think thirty pounds from a gentleman of his acquaintance. In the country he was the Reverend Dr. So-and-so, with a white necktie, and all the surroundings of a clergyman. In London he was a swell with a cigar in his mouth. 
it so happened that the benevolent gentleman from whom he had obtained the money came to town and recognised the doctor when cutting the swell and had him apprehended and punished he had been several times in county prisons but as he always changed his name and his localities this fact was not known officially he was an avowed infidel and seemed to delight in spreading his opinions among the prisoners who were generally too willing to listen to him if he keeps out of prison it will be his cleverness in escaping detection and not his principles that will save him his prison influence was most pernicious and afforded another striking and painful illustration of the evils of the indiscriminate association of prisoners i maintain that it formed no part of any prisoner's sentence that in addition to all the other horrors of penal servitude he should be placed within the sphere of this man's influence as such as he and the system which not only permits but demands that his moral and religious interests should be thus imperilled if not altogether corrupted and destroyed undertakes a fearful responsibility the next case i will notice will illustrate the truth of what i have advanced on this point it was that of a young man he who had been respectfully educated and whose crime was simply the foolish frolic of a giddy youth he had engaged a dog-cart to drive to london a distance somewhat about fifty miles from where he resided he had another youth for his companion and they both got on the spree in london some shark picked them up and bought the horse and dog-cart from them at a merely nominal price when they got sober they returned home and this youth went and told the proprietor of the dog-cart what he had done and according to his own statement offered through his friends to pay for it the proprietor was so enraged however that nothing but the prosecution of the prisoner would satisfy him and he was sentenced to ten years penal servitude he had the character of a fast youth and met with a severe judge the prisoner might have been easily led into the path of honour and usefulness if the attempt had been honestly made whoever this judge was if he were an englishman and father of a family he would never again pass sentence of penal servitude on such a youth for any offence against property if he knew as well as i do what the sentence involves shut up any such man for seven years in a place where the only men of his own age are city-bred thieves and what can be expected of him this young man elected the smartest and cleverest of the london pickpockets for his companions they made a tool of him in prison and unless his friends have managed to get him sent abroad he is very likely acting as a stall for some of his old companions now he never learnt anything in prison except knitting he was also one of the readers but most of his time was spent in hospital he could spit blood when he chose and the doctor being more liberal to him than many others for several very natural reasons the prisoner used this liberty to benefit some of his pals who could not manage to get the good things they wanted from the doctor otherwise in return for this kindness 
he would get an inch or two of tobacco or snout as it was usually termed when other means failed to procure this luxury he would write to his friends for a toothbrush and sell it for the weed which caused the toothbrushes to be withdrawn from all the prisoners then he would write for a pair of spectacles pretending that his eyes were getting weak these he sold and the last were discovered passing into one of the cook's hands in fair exchange for mutton chops they were taken into the governor's room and after being examined by that potentate, they were laid on his desk and next morning they were nowhere to be found they were stolen but not by a prisoner of course p knew nothing about his spectacles when examined on the subject except that someone must have taken them from his shelf the result was that all spectacles belonging to the prisoners were called in and prison glasses issued in their stead the spectacles were intended ultimately to reach the hands of an officer for tobacco and if they had not been removed from the desk the officer might have got his discharge and the prisoner a severe punishment this was one of the thousand and one schemes which prisoners resort to in order to get snout and without the aid of an officer they can get none this youth was intended by his parents for the church but was trained in prison to be a thief as a warning to others and his was far from being a solitary case End of chapter twelve